Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with our co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer, editor-in-chief of Hopkins Biotech Network publication, The Transcript. Our guest today is Dr. Sam Hong. He is the chief operating officer and scientist at Rapafusin Pharmaceuticals, a Hopkins-based startup. He graduated with a PhD at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in the Chemical Biology Interface Program. Sam, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. So could you briefly introduce us to Rapafusin Pharmaceuticals? Sure. So we are a startup, um, startup pharmaceutical company. We license technology out of um, my former PhD lab from Professor Jun Liu at the Department of Pharmacology and Molecular Sciences. Um, and what we do is we develop this uh, platform where we can chemically synthesize rapamycin-like macrocycles. Um, so rapamycin, as you may know, is this natural product um, that had its origins from uh, Easter Island. And there's some really great pharmacological properties as well as some very interesting um, binding properties that rapamycin can use once it's inside the cell. And so we try to use some of those uh, motifs and ideas to create a platform of new macrocycles to go after totally different targets. So not just mTOR. Um, we go after things in oncology. We go after things on uh, ischemia reperfusion. We have some CNS projects as well as um, some other uh, transporters and all sorts of fun stuff. Just to follow up, um, so you mentioned that these drugs are commonly found structures in nature. What makes them really challenging to sort of recreate in a lab or in a development process for therapeutics? So there's two compounds that were found in nature, uh, FK506 and rapamycin. Um, they're, you know, they're over a, a thousand Daltons. They're, I wouldn't call them common, but they are difficult. So there's probably a reason why you don't see a lot of drugs like that. So one is that um, they're large, which makes it a lot of chemistry to do. There's a lot of flexibility um, and there's a lot of stereo centers. So any medicinal chemist out there will tell you, oh, you want to do all of that. And then you want to cyclize it under macro cyclization. That's not easy. So, you know, it, I don't blame them at all. It's just uh, you start with the lowest hanging fruit and you make things that are easy to make, um, you know, that are well rigid structures that are easy to model. And uh, you go from there. We took the approach of wanting to follow some of the um, ideas that kind of nature um, gave us from Rapamycin FK506 and kind of further exploit those um, to go after new targets. Maybe you'd go after things that we couldn't normally do before. All right, so let's let's now back up and, and get into the origin story. Where did you grow up and what sort of sparked your interest in science? Okay, so um, I'm actually a Maryland native. I grew up in Gaithersburg, um, Gaithersburg, Maryland. I went to high school there. Then I went up to uh, college at Boston University. And then I came back down and um, I did a brief um, post-baccalaureate program at NIH before I started over at Hopkins. 
But if you were to ask me what got me into science, gosh, I, I think I've, both my parents worked a lot when I was younger. So I had a lot of TV time. And um, you can probably blame, you know, the public broadcasting stations for uh, kind of sparking my interest. So things like Bill Nye, the Science Guy, Beekman's World, you know, I loved that Magic School Bus. Um, I always thought those were really interesting. And I kind of dabbled in a lot of things going, you know, in high school, I, I really liked programming and um, kind of technology. And then when I got into college, I was more interested in medicine. And I, and I thought about that for a while as a career. Um, and eventually, you know, I, my work at NIH, I worked in a synthetic chemistry lab, and I thought it was just so much fun. I was doing things where I was synthesizing new compounds that have never, never been made before. And then I would just go ahead and be able to test those from in cells and, you know, in, um, in vitro assays. And I was even able to push things into uh, animals as well, too. So that process was just really fulfilling to me. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, and I felt like there was like, hey, you know, you could do something very interesting with, you know, these sort of tools. And that's kind of why I want to pursue it. And, you know, I've just always been reaffirmed by it um, kind of on and on as I've been going into the process. And it's been a lot of fun. So then that brought you to Hopkins for your PhD work. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And you mentioned you're working at a company that spun out from your PhD advisor's work. Um, can you talk about how the two relate? Sure. When I started, um, I was part of the chemical biology interface program. And so we do have rotations there. Traditionally, people take three rotations to uh, pick a lab. At the end of my third rotation, I thought all of them were great. I, I just couldn't decide. So then um, someone told me about Professor June Liu's lab. And I thought, hey, you know what? They do some really cool stuff. They do some chemistry. They do some biology. Um, why don't I just give it a try, right? Because a rotation, you know, what's a rotation compared to the length of the whole PhD? So I thought, okay, let's do this. So I joined uh, the rotation and it was just a ton of fun. I liked the lab a lot. The projects were really cool. And it was just, you know, I stayed on as my fourth rotation till, you know, till I graduated basically. So the Rapifusin project was one that I worked on in the lab, but it actually wasn't my first one. I probably was into a different project where I was doing a total, total synthesis slash target ID of another natural product. And somewhere in my second year, I found out that somebody else had been working on it and they were about to publish. So I keep, I always kept kind of these Google alerts and little web crawlers about all the topics that I was into. And I found someone's um, PhD thesis. It wasn't published yet, but it was kind of out there. And I was like, oh no, they are about to publish on this project I'm only two years into. And, you know, do I really want to continue? And I didn't, I bailed on the project because I wasn't going to get as far as I need to. And they were kind of already covered everything I wanted to do. And then when I bailed kind of in my second year, I started on this Rapifusin project. Um, and the basis of that project became uh, a lot of the foundation for the company I'm at now. You hear the question academia versus industry a lot. You know, was that something you thought about? Did you consider staying in academia and doing a traditional postdoc? To answer your question about, did I ever consider things out, you know, kind of this non-traditional path. Yeah, I, I did. So it was actually kind of like a big um, turning point for me. I was actually at the end of, I remember pretty clear, I was at the end of my fourth year and I was spending a ton of time in the lab. And um, I came to the realization that even if I work really, really hard and publish like a, you know, let's say, let's say I published like 10 nature papers, I didn't know what I would do with that. Right. And so I didn't know what that was going to mean to me. But if I wasn't going to be in academia, I didn't know what else to do. 
I kind of um, started just poking around. I liked the idea of the, you know, the business side of science. Um, my theory was, is that, you know, patents, papers, while they're great and they're, that's how things are discovered and made, that's not what actually puts, you know, like a pill in someone's hand, right? There, there's so many more things to do. The time scales were important to me too. You know, in academics, you can figure out something or discover something new and you'll, you'll, you may never see that in your lifetime, like how that ever comes to use. So I wanted something where it, where it impacted people. I could see the, the difference in my lifetime. The consulting thing was an interesting thing for me because I, there was a thing called the Hopkins Consulting Club. And so I, I joined that and it was, it was great for me to be able to apply things, not necessarily in science, but to, you know, take, take brain power and to apply it to things that I could see the impact, you know, right away or kind of within the ensuing months. And that was exciting. And that was a lot of fun to me. And it didn't have anything to do with science at times too. Sometimes it did, but sometimes it didn't. And I just liked the idea of, you know, somebody has a need and you go in, you kind of loan your brain for a while and uh, you attack a problem and uh, you kind of give them a, a plan to execute on. I think that's a very interesting self-assessment in going forward and thinking about, I have these skills, values, and interests. Where do I see them lying in the development life cycle and where can I provide the biggest impact? Also, it's very awesome that you moved into a project that would ultimately be translated because to me, that's kind of like every PhD's dream for their thesis work to then uh, be in a place where you yourself can move the needle forward in the next step and then you go and commercialize it. That's super interesting. Uh, but I want to talk about your exploration in the business side of science and how you went about that. When you started doing that, when you started joining the Graduate Consulting Club, were you surprised at some of the skills that you had learned in your PhD, perhaps some of the soft skills that had to do with due diligence and being rigorous, those types of things, and how well they served you in these other ways, for instance, like consulting? Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of grad students, especially towards the end of their um, time in the lab, they, they figure, oh, you know, I'm really good at just doing my project, right? And it's not true. I think for, for any of us, at the end of your PhD, you're trying to make some statement, right? You're trying to say, I did something, right? And you're trying to say how you know. So it's, it's saying what you know and how you, how you figured it out. That is not a simple thing, right? And it's not just that, oh, I know how to do a bunch of PCRs or I know how to do a bunch of Western plots, All right? If you come out of that, out of the program, you've, you've learned to question why. You've learned to figure out what you're trying to say and you've learned how to defend it, right? Using a bunch of hopefully undisputable facts. That's super important, learning how to think critically, learning how to be skeptical about what's out there, and then learning how to make an argument to prove something. So to answer your question, I knew that I had a lot of other skills, but I just didn't know how to prove that I did for some advice I would give to people in their graduate programs is it's one thing to, you know, have the sense that, hey, I can do a lot or just be really interested. It's the other thing to, to prove it. And I would say, go do it, right? So, you know, if you're interested in a very science-driven field, you hopefully you've had the chance to prove that you can do those skills. If you want to do something else, if you want to uh, go into writing, you know, work on some grants, you know, show that you know how to write. If you're interested in other kind of creative design or strategy, 
find, find projects and things you can do to prove that you have those skills. And so that's kind of what I was doing when I joined that consulting club kind of um, after hours in the lab. It's that I thought I was interested in something. I thought I had, um, I'd be able to do it. So it was a chance to practice kind of business, business uh, cases and try to solve some problems that, you know, local organizations and people needed. And you also sought out some equity research experience around the same time, right? My frame of reference was the stock market seems to be really important. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's somehow it's, it's a way for businesses to gain capital. So I wanted to figure out more, more about that. Right. So that T. Price equity research thing, it was kind of the first year. Um, and so I, you know, applied for the program. It, it just gave me a chance to, first of all, figure out what stocks were, you know, and, and what equities were. And it was really kind of self-driven. So it just gave me a chance to like, hey, let me go look at it and then try to apply what I what I think I've learned. And um, we went to T. Rowe Price. We picked a stock, had an upswing, and we had we made a thesis about it. We said, okay, here's, here's kind of the, the price that we think it should sell for. It's going to have a nice bump given certain events that was tied to some scientific not, you know, insights that we had based on their pipelines and, and the basic research. And then we can say, hey, you know, based on what we think, buying the stock at this price and selling it at this price would be a good idea. Cool. Okay. So now let's circle back to uh, Rapifusin. What does your day-to-day look like as COO of a biotech startup? So we're a small company. It's probably not a normal day-to-day. Right. So there's always things going on. You know, uh, I actually I'm still in the lab as well. Sometimes some days I'm, you know, just kind of working with our CEO and I'm just, you know, we're kind of in his office all morning, kind of going over strategy or going through some event that happened, you know, sometimes just putting out fires all day long and then things will pop up. But I actually kind of love that. So I like it how my job is not just turn turn a wheel and just see how many times I've turned that wheel by the end of the day. It's kind of you know, we have this broad goal of where we want to go and let's do whatever we can and pull together whatever resources we have to get there. Right. Very different from working at a large pharma company where you're sort of resigned to a very specific job at a startup. There are many things that have to be done with limited number of hands. And so the thing that's often said is wear many hats. Yeah. You wear, wear many hats, you know, so, so the CEO, John, he's, um, uh, I always say that the E and CEO is everything officer. He's the chief everything officer. And the O and COO is uh, all the other stuff. Uh, what's been the biggest learning curve so far? I think trying to utilize every resource you have has been what I've learned from that. that has been different. I, I think we all have resources, right? And so um, typically on, on the business side, you're, sometimes you're just thinking about money right? Or your IP or the science behind your work. But, you know, you also have other reasons, like your, the connections you have, kind of your political capital, right? The different connections you have between people. I think when I got there, we were just starting, right? So every skill you think you have, just do whatever you can to achieve that goal. So that, that's been kind of the biggest learning curve. And I think when I was in graduate school, it's more of a confined box of what you do and the resources you have. Um, but then just getting out is just kind of everything I had. <laughs> let's, let's just use it and uh, go for it. So I want to transition 
into talking about another facet of science. I think we covered a few. One is being scientifically rigorous and seeing what things work and what things don't in academia or even in industry. Then there's this other aspect, which is translating that science into something that can actually affect people and improve their lives. But there's also another aspect of science, which is science communication. So I'm interested to get your take on what you think about the importance of science communication, the ability to introduce your science in a way that someone else can understand. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I think it's it's an important thing. So fortunately, a lot of the time, the, the community, you know, you're speaking science, you're being very technical to a lot of the your vendors, your, your collaborators. Um, but in the end, you need to, the goal is to convince a regulatory agency, the FDA, right? And so you're your work needs to be able to speak to them and convince them that, um, you know, what you're doing is safe and efficacious. Thankfully, most of them are scientists, but they're not all scientists. And then after that, um, you know, I hope we get there someday. So we're going to have to convince doctors and the public that what you're, what you've done is you've created something for them that can hopefully help them. Um, and so of course, you know, science, communicating science to the, the people who, you know, don't breathe this day in, day out is, is obviously extremely important in the end they're going to have to believe you and trust you and obviously trust the FDA that you've created something, right? Looks like a little pill and it's supposed to save their day. Um, if you didn't communicate that very well and think about what a tough sell that is to make, say, Hey, I got something for you. It costs about, you know, so many dollars and you should take this and it's going to fix your problems. Has communicating with investors been sort of a challenge or have you noticed you've had to adapt your language in any kind of way? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that is something that we run in, uh, kind of a challenge we run into all the time, right? So the investors have their goals, right? They're, they're trying to make a profit within a certain time frame. They're not always subject experts in whatever it is you're, you're pitching. Sometimes they're just very general investors. Um, sometimes they are scientifically driven, but it doesn't matter how smart you are. It only matters how well you can convince them. So people may not have exposure to the process of pitching to investors, but they may on some surface level, there are some shows out there, like for instance, Shark Tank, where someone goes in and, and pitches. How similar or different is the experience from that? Oh, I think it, it totally depends on the investor, right? So some investors really are, um, you know, they're scientists, right? So some of them are just like razor sharp. They know exactly what it is and you can just jump into the science with them and they might like that. Some of them are, you, you have to like, you know, say, you know, here is how you would make money, right? <laughs> it's like, this is how many dollars you have to put in. This is how many dollars we hope to, to, to come out. Um, and so, so it just spans the gamut, um, but you just have to be, you know, uh, this goes back to that communication, right? Understand who it is you're talking to on what level you can, going to and just you know you have to present yourself in a way that re, you know, resonates with them so just you know knowing that audience right so is it like shark tank it can be sometimes you know you are there they have a very short amount of time because they're very busy hearing a bunch of other pitches and you do um, whatever you can to get their attention and to convince them that you're the right bet to make right and a really important aspect of translating something you need other people to believe in in the vision or be convinced that what you're doing is the right thing to do and to come along with you in that process. Correct. 
Yeah, absolutely. So like at Rapid Houston, we, you know, we have a really great team. Um, and I always think about this, you know, when kind of over the years that, you know, they had to take a chance on us. Um, and so I'm, I'm always so thankful that they're with us. They do such great work. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we, we just had to work really hard to try to convince them, hey, you know, we think we got a shot. We think this will be something interesting and, um, you know, we're going to treat you fair and we're going to hopefully have a good time. So for people that might want to get into the startup world or they're thinking about a startup after, say, PhD graduation or maybe even their postdoc looking to transition, what experiences or advice do you think they should seek out in order to make that transition? Um, so if, I guess if you're asking about startups and specifically, you know, it's a risky thing, right? Um, and so my, my case was really strange uh, and kind of not not common um, because we we already had an investor before we started but for most people you know what I would say to them is you, know, you have to be comfortable with that risk right there is a lot of risk um, in startups and hopefully there's a lot of reward too um, but that's up to you to negotiate you know to make sure that you participate in the long-term rewards as well too um, otherwise you just have risk and that's you know Nobody likes to do that. However, you know, uh, small companies and startups included, hopefully you can find one, you know, they have a lot of needs and they don't always have people to fill every single need. And so if you like roles where you have a lot of hats on, you like role, roles where it's kind of things are ambiguous and they change very, very quickly, um, then that might be something for you. Finding startups is, is, is a different story. You know, I would, I would check out, you know, places, um, you know, of course, there's always places that look online, you know, startups typically don't have the hiring budgets to do, you know, hire big recruiters or things like that. But, um, you know, look into kind of the incubator spaces within universities, look into, you know, other smaller listings and go from there. And then I guess, what are you most excited about going forward for Rapifusen? I think we have a lot of cool stuff. I think the premise of the company, so it's, it's a platform company, right? That means we have this central, um, Kind of engine that can develop design lots of new compounds but each when you take those compounds you can push them forward for different indications right so I, I think that's a very fun idea to be able to work on this uh hit generating uh um, platform but then take each of those hits into leads and so um the the beauty of that is that we can be kind of indication agnostic and just go after things that have this unmet medical need, things that are really cool that, you know, have the chance of, of being really beneficial to people. And so I'm always excited to, you know, keep developing the current leads we have and kind of find new ones in the future. And I, and I love it that, you know, I'm, we're not just in oncology or we're not just in one, one type of indication. And so it's, it's always fun to learn kind of a totally new uh, field. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because like platform biotechs and startups that work on platform technologies, you're probably going to have a different experience than if you were just working on a single target or you just had a single molecule. Right, right. And, and you know, so some people might like, you know, to be to really dive deep into one one target and just know it inside out. Um, and some people may want the variety. Um, I think you have to just think about what what fits your personality the best. Thank you, Sam, for sharing your perspectives today with us, your personal and professional journey, as well as what you're doing with Rapifusin Pharmaceuticals. I had a good time. Thank you for joining us. 
Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chikramani. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.